if you're in a committed relationship or if you have children and you don't like necessarily how you feel about money or you have feelings about your feelings about your money, maybe it's worth exploring it for them because they matter. My husband matters to me. My girls matter to me. I want to have a healthy relationship with my finances, which starts with me. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back. For all the new listeners, welcome. I hope you enjoy this episode. For the returning listeners, welcome. We're glad to have you back for this episode with Dr. Megan Lertz. Megan is a professor of practice at Kansas State University, where she teaches courses for Advanced Financial Planning Certificate Program. She's a lecturer at Columbia University, where she teaches financial psychology, and she's an on-staff writer for the extremely popular website, kitsis.com, where she focuses on financial psychology. Her research interest varies as she studies both practitioners of financial planning and as well as financial planning and financial therapy practices and intervention. Megan's work is extremely well received for really good reasons, as you'll hear in our episode today. She has an in-depth knowledge of the areas that she researches and focuses on. As such, her articles have been featured in all the major news publications, the Journal of Financial Planning, Journal of Consumer Affairs, Financial Planning Review, Wall Street Journal, and the list literally goes on and on. This was an enjoyable conversation. Megan starts out with sharing insights on the at times complex nature of combining finances with our spouses and how it can reveal so much of our own relationships with money. She also provides valuable suggestions on how we can reduce discomfort in prioritizing our future dreams and goals and why change is hard and how we can embrace it. Megan also discusses the significance of looking at our regrets. I found this part particularly interesting as she really frames our regrets as an opportunity to learn and how to change for the future, especially in our financial lives. It was an absolute pleasure to have Megan on the podcast. And we are actually going to be having round two next week when we talk about the application of positive psychology on our financial lives. So be sure to tune in to next week's episode. And we also have a good chuckle in this episode when we talk about the wonderful dive bar in San Diego, California called Star Bar. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Megan Lertz. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy you are here. I have seen your name. Many people have recommended you. And 
And I'm glad that this morning works for both of us. Uh, yeah. Although it might not be morning wherever you are, but uh, at least it, it is, is for me. Yeah. It is? Okay. Today. <laughs> you know, there's so many fascinating areas where you research, you write about that I'm really looking forward to diving into from your professional work. But I thought we'd start with maybe the real work or the foundational work that is often overlooked by many, which includes myself, and that's our own work, our own stories, attempting to understand why we personally feel, think, and act the way we do when it comes to money. So I understand that you started to learn that money had a whole different side to it when your husband wanted to combine money with you. Maybe tell us what this taught you about money. Yeah, this this was kind of a a funny story that to your point that like origin stories matter. It matters about, you know, our experiences and then, you know, how we show up in the world. So my boyfriend at the time, fiance nearly, we decided to buy a house together and he comes home and he's like, you know, we should combine our finances because we have this house. And I remember just feeling rage, like instant rage from my toes all the way to my nose. I remember I we lived in this like 800 square foot apartment and I'm like on the other side of the room and I'm just so mad. And I said, you know, are you are you trying to control me with your money? And he's like, no, <laughs> I I don't think I am. I just thought, you know, we're going to have this house together and that it might make sense to have a combined account. And I said, well, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to do that. Like if I need to go to Mexico one day, you know, I just need to be able to go. <laughs> and he's like, okay, we won't combine finances. <laughs> so maybe a year later after that, I'm in the financial therapy program at Kansas State. And I am in the class called Money and Relationships with the Dr. Christy Archuleta. Part of the assignment is that we have to interview like our family members about just money. And I'm talking to my mom and talking to my grandmother. You know, my great grandmother was married to a drunk. At one point, he sold the dog, you know, to go buy alcohol. And so she would hide money in the house, you know, in order to be able to take care of her family. You know, flash forward to my grandmother, my grandfather divorced my grandmother, and she had to sell many possessions that were precious to her in order to take care of her kids. Now, flash forward to my mom. My mom would always tell me, my dad never did anything like that, but my mom would always tell me, like, you you are a woman. You know, you have to take care of yourself. You know, you cannot rely on a man. And it was not at the time, you know, when I'm hearing it, this is not a bad thing to tell a female that, you know, you need to have financial independence. But I had never realized that this message of financial independence was a warning. And so, of course, I now flash back to this moment with my now fiance that I'm living with in this apartment that we bought in San Diego. And I recognize that's why I'm mad. Not because of anything that he did, but because my whole life, three generations of women that I deeply respect have told me, you have to be independent. They can take it away. And even though they never said that, it was never, you know, until I interviewed my grandmother and great-grandmother about their relationship with money, I did not know 
about some of that stuff. But it was still being fed to me in unspoken ways, but also, you know, obviously in spoken ways, the whole idea of just taking care of yourself. But that manifested as something very different. And then my husband, his family's not like that at all. They're just like, given their, one, he's only child, he's a male, they're, they're very open about things like that. And he just thought, you know, I'm just taking care of you. And they're like, I love you and I want to share this with you. And it had, and my interpretation of that and his interpretation of that moment were just so different. And it, it was just, it's just an iconic example in many ways, just such an obvious example in many ways as to how our past, how our money history, you know, shows up in our money present. And without taking the time to kind of like explore that a little bit, it can continue on, you know, into our money future, which is neither here nor there necessarily good nor bad, you know, unless it's causing an issue. I'll just never, I'll just never forget that. I'll never forget feeling that angry. And I'll never forget being like, God, <laughs> sitting in Dr. Archuleta's class, realizing for the first time that, you know, the way that the way this had manifested for me and what that really meant. Thank you for sharing that. And I love stories, especially on the podcast, especially money stories, because people listening are are listening, but now they're going to take a moment to even reflect on their own version of your story. And as I'm listening to to you speak, I can't think about my father's side where there are Ukrainian immigrants and the government promised certain type of land to farm on and it was taken away. And this idea, this, these are your words, though, they can take it away what came into your mind, but that's also something that came through through my mind. So I think this is a universal experience that mm-hmm. we have a scarcity. So for some of us, a scarcity around money, the content of the story is for ourselves to figure out. But I like how you share the story because it makes you human. This, you know, PhD, all the research that you're yeah, doing. Not a robot. <laughs> you're not a robot, which is which is nice. To explore, like you began to explore what have you found was valuable or an effective way that you could start to explore after this class with Dr. Archuleta or, that you could start to unpeel what was happening? Is there exercises? Is there techniques that you find work well? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of like the beautiful thing about being human is that you can think about thinking mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can slow down and say, you know, do I want to continue to think this way? Do I want to have this, this feeling and then behave in this way? Or can I mind that gap in between and choose something else? I think that, you know, like therapy, it takes work. You have to want to do it. I have, thankfully, whether it's through education, whether it's through just being with colleagues, you know, that are interested in the same topic, being with financial planners interested in the same topic. I've had lots of opportunity in my life to think, hmm, you know, I do behave this way with money, or I do think this thing about my financial situation. Why do I think that? You know, where is that from? You know, is that serving me? Is that true all the time? Is this something I want to take forward? Just having the opportunity to slow down and ask oneself those things Sometimes you do want to take it forward. Sometimes it still does make sense. Sometimes you're just not ready to set it down. And then other times you are. And that whole process of change, you know, that sort of active change in a way, I think is really 
important, but hard. I am a pretty busy person. I like to be busy. I enjoy doing lots of things. But I have kids now. I have a three and a half, almost four-year-old, and I have a 18, 20, 20-ish month old kid, two little girls. I want to be with them. And that means I can't work as much or I have to work in a different way. That has taken me a lot to figure out how to do that, how to do that well, how to do it in a way that I feel good about both worlds. That's been a really challenging thing and, and has been a, a top of mind consideration the past couple of years in my life. One of the biggest transitions. So I promise we can get to the, the professional side, but I mean, <laughs> what, you, what you talk about there, it makes me think of myself. I'm a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And this existing, to use your words, in both worlds, I think it was challenging for me to understand this new identity, which is around change. And I feel like I hear you saying that you've been thinking about this identity because there was Megan pre-children to now mother Megan in a very busy stage. What have you learned, whether it's through your, your, your personal experience or through the research that you do about our identities and embracing just who we are in the present and what that identity means to us? What can that do to help us change and evolve as opposed to resisting? And I guess the underbelly of this story is for a few years, I wanted to be an active dad who laid on the ground and played with my kids. But in my head, I'm like, no, I'm this financial planner. I need to work. I need to get money so that we can have financial freedom. So we have time. And I was like, over the last year, couple of years, I'm like, wait, the time is now. The kids are there. And I started realizing it wasn't one or the other. Wow, this, I get this wrong every single day. This is what I'm trying to get better at. <laughs> so for right. yourself, how, how have you come to put both feet in both worlds, as you said? Made some conscious decisions about work hours, which I know that maybe sounds like a simple thing, but I work all the time. I love my work have been defined by my work for a very long time. And it's something that I'm proud of. And in many ways doing, I've really had to rethink what it means to do less in the sense like, you know, sometimes people are like, well, what'd you do on Saturday? And well, you know, I'm thinking I just went like park to park and fed my kids candy and, you know, then got mad when they wouldn't eat lunch. And, you know, so I'm thinking like, I did not do anything. You know, it's typically how I would say I didn't do anything. But I did. I was with my kids. I was, you know, trying to have fun. I was resting, you know, so that I could be a good working person, you know, come, come Monday. So it's been, uh, trying to reframe being nice to myself and also reframing being patient with myself, you know, as I figure out, you know, how to do this. Cause my kids in particular are at a time when they are different every day. So like, I think I have a good Wednesday and we're like, well, Thursday now, <laughs> you know, I hate macaroni now. And you're yeah. like, okay, all right. I guess we're trying again. In therapy a long, long time ago, therapist said to me, what would happen, you know, if, if it doesn't go the way you want? And they said, well, I don't know, you know, just go the way I want. I guess I'll learn something. And she goes, Yeah that it's just all one big experiment. You're going to learn something different, whether it works or it doesn't. And that's okay. You know, if that's like where you place your emphasis, then doing it again and again, it's okay. And I've just, I've really tried to 
step into, because yeah, we can't get this time back. You know, mm-hmm. they're not going to be little for very long. And I want to be there for them. And my career is also very important to me. Like, I may not be like, I don't know how many articles I've written so far this year, but maybe next year, I don't know, I'll like lose my ability to write, you know? So like some things you just have to do because it's, it's right now and you got to do it. But just trying to find the balance between the two of those and not saying to myself when I'm being a mom, you know, I'm a terrible working person. And when I'm a working person saying to myself, I'm a terrible mom, but just saying that I have to do both to be me, that there is a balance and that it's not about being a bum or this or that, that, that sometimes it's okay to rest and sometimes it's okay to play and sometimes it's okay to write. And these things all have to happen in balance. And that often looks unbalanced all the time, you know, and I don't know, it's just something that I've continually worked on over the past couple of years. Well, thank you for sharing. I definitely hear just this idea that it's, there's no equation that we can all put to ourselves. You got to work this many hours, be with your kids this time. I feel like what I'm hearing you say is just understanding yourself with all the different identities. A lot of that makes me think of myself when I was trying to always be busy, especially with the kids. It's funny. You're like, I got to do this, line this up, line this. And my wife's like, why can't you just be? I am being, I'm doing. She's like, no, be right. instead of doing. <laughs> and then she's like, be a human being, not a human doer. I'm like, what? No, wait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's hard. It's it hard. is. It is. And I find what's so interesting about our money is that it could be a portal into these parts of ourselves that we really get to know who we are. And it's people's work, or like yourselves, offer us such great articles. So, so thank you for all those articles on how we can start doing this work. And I think a, a good transition from personal to your your professional work is, let's talk about Dr. Barry Mulholland. Is that his name? Yeah, yeah. Can you speak of the significance that he played on your career? So I was working for a company called Totary Balance Expert. Totary Balance Expert sits on top of Schwab Portfolio Center. And it was kind of like back in the day, it was in competition with like iRebel. It's a just rebalances portfolios tax efficiently. So we're at like a TD Ameritrade conference or something like this. And all of these PhD students from Texas Tech, you know, walk up and they're interested in And Texas Tech has a Schwab Center and the software, they wanted to be able to use the software because it worked with Schwab and they had Schwab at their school. So they wanted to use it for research. And one of the other people that walked up also was Dr. Barry Mulholland. And he was just chatting with me and talking with me. And we were talking about how sometimes, you know, clients would call and they want to rebalance a portfolio and you get to talking to them about why, you know, that's going on. And it usually was some like crazy family story (laughs) had nothing to do really with money and more everything to do with family dynamics. And my background at the time was in industrial organizational psychology. So not necessarily families, but certainly teams and team dynamics and stuff like that. So I found those conversations really interesting. And I was talking to Barry about this and we were kind of laughing about that. And he goes, well, you know, if you like that, you know, mix of money and, and psychology and, and feelings and stuff like that and relationships, he goes, you know, they, they do that, you know, at Texas Tech or they, sorry, they do that. Well, they do it at Texas Tech. But at the time he was talking about Georgia and Kansas State. And I go, well, I'm a military spouse. You know, I move around. I can't just be at a university. I don't, I don't know that I'll ever get the chance, you know, to do my PhD. 
And he goes, well, actually, the K-State program, you know, it's it's primarily online or predominantly online. It's um, a cohort system where you go back in the summer, but then the rest of the time you can be wherever you want. And he goes, one of my former students is a professor there. If you want to meet her, I'll, I'll, ha- I'll make it happen. Dr. Mulholland did not know me from Adam. You know, I was just some random person at this big conference with like 5 million people there. He did not have to help me. You know, he did not even have to talk to me, you know, about the things that I was talking about. He certainly did not have to take his time. And that is exactly what he did. He went back and he emailed, well, Dr. Sonia Luter, Dr. Britt at the time. So emailed Dr. Sonia Luter, emailed Dr. Christy Archuleta, got me on a phone call with them. I just talked about my background, decided that day to sign up for their master's in financial therapy, took two classes in the master's in financial therapy and went for my PhD. (laughs) And had it not been for Dr. Barry Mulholland, I mean, I I wouldn't be here today. Mm. It's so interesting, these inflection points in our lives, especially when we can reflect back on them and just see the significance they have. And just looking at your work, I can imagine there are so many of those Dr. Barry Mulholland examples that you probably don't even know about because of your online presence, your online work. So I feel like you're paying it forward with all of the articles that people read who didn't know this field existed. And so, yeah, I bet you there's a lot of people thanking you. <laughs> I try. Well, all thanks be to uh, to Dr. Barry Mulholland and honestly, Michael Kitsis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because... He didn't have to hire me. (laughs) There were were probably a lot of other people qualified to do what I was hired to do. And I I made a post. I don't post very often. I'm not particularly good at social media. I'm kind of afraid of it. But five years ago, I was writing CE questions. I I told Michael, you know, I know how to write. And he goes, okay, write something. So then, you know, then the next year he was like, write 12 articles. I think I was supposed to write 16 and I wrote 12. And then I've been writing 18 ever since. And then I started doing webinars for the platform. And now I do speaking events for the platform. And I have learned so much from from him, from Jeff, from Adam, from Derek, from Ben, like many of the other people on the platform. Sydney and Erica have made me a better writer. It might look like I do a lot, but I got to stand on the shoulders of some very large giants and have had so much help. And standing from just so many different people all along the way, just people willing to give me a chance and me then doing whatever I could with that chance, for sure. You, you sound like a very um, humble person. I'm certain those people saw something in you that wanted them to put you on their shoulders. And yeah, and it sounds like I've heard you talk about, about that team and it sounds like a really great team to be part of. So we're, we're glad as readers that you, your team then continues to put you in a situation to put these articles out because I find them extremely interesting. One of them in particular, on this notion of that we're talking with change and I guess also embracing our current self, you talked about the future dreams and goals, why it might not always be best to look at the future dreams and goals. And I remember looking at this article and I thought, well, you know, so many people have always told me, like, vision board, discuss your, your dreams and goals. And then I started to realize that, well, while it feels good in the moment, maybe, it, it's really challenging to implement it and make meaningful change towards these goals when we just only look at that faraway future self. So what would you say to people? Like, what's psychologically happening to us when we start to only focus on those far goals? And how can, if anything at all, 
we maybe embrace more change by looking at our current, like as where our two feet are right now? So there was great research from Hal Hirschfield on just how people see their future self. And they we see our future selves kind of like strangers. And there's things that we can do to make that person seem less like a stranger. But that kind of explains, you know, why for just the average person, it's kind of weird to be saving or doing things for this future person because we don't really know them. We don't really associate with them. So that's one thing. Two because this person is so different from us, we don't really know what they're going to like. And another thing, you know, that just socially, we don't really talk about money. Like there's not a lot of great examples of a person that's really good at talking about money. And so we say things like really, like really blanket statements. Well, yeah, I want to like retire. Well, uh, good. Yes. You know, me too. But like, what, you know, what does that really look like? You know, who's going to be there? What do you intend on doing every day? These things are much more difficult, you know, to figure out, not because people aren't smart, but just like our brains aren't meant to do that. And so to the point about vision boards, you know, that can actually help. I mean, if you are going to pick something further out, try to make it as concrete as possible. Like, so when people make a vision board and they say, I want to retire, like, do they have pictures of beaches or do they have pictures of something else? Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but like, let's get really granular on what that looks like. Let's give that more context. Let's give this more, you know, three, three D form to it as much as we possibly can. Another important thing to think about is just how humans learn. We tend to forget this because it's painful to learn in this way, but we learn best by doing and failing a few times. And so, you know, people that say, okay, I want to retire and I want to spend three months in Europe. And you're okay, oh, like, what's the longest you've ever spent in Europe? And they're like, you know, one weekend. And you're like, three months might be tough, you know? <laughs> so like, let's, let's just get you there for two weeks. You know, if that goes well, let's get you over there for a month. Give ourselves the data, give ourselves the experience to learn and be able to ask, do I like this? Is this what I thought it was going to be? Did I have enough Aperol spritzes or did I eat a few more? You know, like, it's okay. I think that we forget that we learn by experience, but we do. So if we want to help our future self, it's very important to kind of do some of this experimenting, you know, do some of this experiential learning to really try to give, and that helps you to create more context. You know, you think beach, but there's lots of different kinds of beaches actually. And maybe these ones are more you than these ones. And, and we don't, we can't know that without doing a little bit of trying. And it's not just waiting until we get to this other place in our life where we can finally try. No, just like try incrementally along the way so that when you get there, maybe it's not that big of a jump. And maybe when you get there, you'll actually have a more fully formed idea of what you really like. So it isn't just, you know, purely a focus on right now, but it can't purely be a focus on the future. It really has to be a balance between the two. And there are lots of different ways to make that happen. I feel like a lot of people get to retirement, like my parents, they both get to retirement. They were in retirement for like three months and then they went and got jobs. 
they were just bored, you know, they, and so much of their life was working and they enjoyed it, you know, not only because of their brain and just keeping it active, but they had social lives, you know, through their jobs. And so it's like, you, you just can't know you, there's this goal out there, but unless you kind of experiment with that goal, try it on a little bit, you know, take a really long vacation, you know, try to sit in your house for two weeks. If you can't do that, you may not really like retirement. And so just, it's okay to, to recognize that it's okay to change course, but it's more fun to make, you know, small changes along the way than it is to be like, well, I guess we're doing a total left turn, which is also all right, but might be more fun along the way. I really love this answer. It makes me think of, of two things this, that I can't remember the saying, but it's something like, it's not good to realize that when you climb up the top of a ladder that you have the ladder on the wrong wall. Yeah. And what I mean by that is like, like you're suggesting is try these many things like your Europe example. We might be trying to get to Europe for three months, but if we start to do these experimental learning that you speak of, we might realize that we're actually trying to run from something and it's not actually Europe. And I think that's what a lot of you, the work that you talk about and blending the psychological aspects into financial planning help us realize. And I think we're all at times running from something when we say we want to retire early. I know when I first heard of the fire movement, I was like, oh yeah, that's me and my wife. Whoa, whoa, okay, slow down. And for me, I realized that, no, even if I would have done that in that short period of time, if I hadn't, which I haven't figured out, but if I hadn't started figuring out the underlying stories, it didn't matter if I would have retired early. That, that longing to have answers underneath would still be there. I think it points to the idea that Again, we tend to think in things in, in this like binary, like I'm not doing anything and now I'm acting. But really mm. like the process of change, you know, has within it a preparation step that mm. comes before the action step. And so if you, if your ultimate action, you know, is to retire, what are you doing in preparation for doing that? Cause we're not just going to go from one to the other. People try that and it oftentimes blows up. That's okay. When that happens, we learn from everything, but. If we understand or just think about, you know, the process of change and some of those earlier steps that can help make the action more actionable, can help make it be the right action, can help make us prepared for when we even need to make a change after the action, all of that comes before. And all of that stuff is things that we can plan for. And it it very much relates to this idea that change, as much as it is a constant you know, is really a, is a practice, you know, mm. is in many ways its own meditation with its own stages. And that the more that we sort of understand that process, then we can bring in ways to help ourselves make those changes, make those changes more efficiently, help them to be changes that are more sustainable and help them to be changes that we really want, you know, and bring, bring joy and things like that into our lives. This idea of change as a practice, I really like that idea that it's a, it's a practice that we constantly need to be almost embodying and to get that joy and sustain change. And I think I, I, I know for definitely myself that just willing myself to change has rarely provided that joy or sustained change. And I like the one article you brought in, the, the theoretical model of change. This has me thinking right now. So the, the first stage is pre-contemplation where we're not really even thinking about it. I want to link it back to something that you said earlier and I, I left it alone, but now it's coming back and I thought, okay, I want to talk about it. Is We were talking about um, 
the money stories and like going back to our past. And I think I heard this correctly. You said it's worth looking at our money stories unless it's not causing an issue. And it, it, it kind of hit in my head there. And I don't know if I heard you correctly, but it hit my head that I often hear people say, no, I'm not going to dive in and do all that work. It's yeah, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And I remember one time I heard Brene Brown on a podcast, I think it was a Tim Ferriss. She said like, even if you're not consciously aware that your past isn't impacting you, it's impacting you just unconsciously. Sure. So when we look at this from our money perspective, if many of us are in this pre-contemplation phase, we're not even thinking about their money stories and how they're impacting us. What offer or invitation would you use or say to listeners who might be in this stage, and we know quite a bit of people are, and only I think 20% are ready for change, but what would you say to these listeners who might be listening to us and like, oh, I got things figured out, you know, everything's good, I got my retirement plan scheduled, and they haven't really done the work to get to know ourselves. What would you say to them to help them maybe see that, ah, moving through these these stages of change can be quite revealing and helpful to get that joy and meaningful change. I tend to think that uh, people like to know themselves, you know, like that's why just about everybody at some point will rattle off like, Oh, I'm a, this from the Myers Briggs or I'm, I'm this from the Colby or, you know, like, so we, people are generally at least at a service level, you know, interested in, psychology, interested in how they think. And I think, I think that's great. You know, like that's part of human nature, I suppose. And so this in many ways is just one step further in thinking about not only what do you think, but you know, how does that manifest in your relationships? Where did that come from? And is it helpful or not? back to like my own money story and kind of having a weird relationship with just this idea of needing to be independent. Being independent is good. Being financially independent is a good thing. In many ways, that serves me immensely. There are other times (laughs) when my husband and I won't say that we fight, but we certainly have a disagreement about whose money is whose and what we're going to do with it. And my independence perhaps does not play as well. You know, but, but since I know where some of that comes from, I can choose to make a different decision. I can choose to try to see things through his side or, you know, recognize that he's not trying to like, you know, be evil, even though that's what my first feeling is. I may never get that feeling to go away, but now that I understand where it's from, I know, you know, which situations it matters and which situations it doesn't. Now I can make a different decision if that's what I want to do. It's just being more informed and helping using that information of the self to move forward. And I think, you know, this comes up in our relationships with our partners and our significant others. But you better believe, you know, as a financial planner that it informs the way you do financial planning. You know, I've I've talked to so many financial planners over the years that just have like incredible origin stories. You know, there's a reason that they're here. And there's a reason that they're doing this work. And to think that you're sitting across from a client and that reason doesn't come into the advice that you give. And this is not a bad thing. This is just how we are. But to recognize that is really important, you know, for trying to give unbiased work or trying to give unbiased advice, but also, you know, not trying to work your issues out, you know, in the client relationship. That becomes kind of a thing that people begin to do. 
or can begin to do. For the people that are listening that are like, oh yeah, maybe money stories, you know, don't matter. You know, just do it a little bit. You know, you don't have to go interview your grandmother like I did. But like, why did you decide to become a financial planner? You know, what was the relationship with your parents like, you know, as it relates to money? How did they treat each other? How did they treat you? How did they treat your siblings? You know, I have three brothers. My brothers have a very different money script than I do. We grew up in the same household. The way that they remember certain events in our lives are different than the event that I remember, simply because we're socialized differently. Some of this stuff can be fun, you know, to learn about and understand. It doesn't have to be like all this deep, dark stuff that, you know, that's like really bad or evil or scary. Sometimes it can be really funny or it can be beautiful. But taking the time, you know, to think about that and some of the benefits that can come from it. A lot of times we won't change for ourselves, you know, it will change for others. If you're in a committed relationship or if you have children and you don't like necessarily how you feel about money or you have feelings about your feelings about your money, maybe it's worth exploring it for them because they matter. My husband matters to me. My girls matter to me. I want to have a healthy relationship with my finances, which starts with me. That was excellent. Thank you from your personal story and just this do it a little bit. The offer of do it a little bit, I think is really, really insightful. And what I mean by that is because I feel like when people start to do it a little bit, they're going to realize that, wow, okay, mm-hmm. I'm starting to learn a lot. Oh, yeah. I tell my students every semester, I teach the financial psychology class at Columbia. I teach a couple different financial therapy courses at Kansas State University. And I usually preface the intro to financial therapy at K-State and the course at Columbia with, this is about to be of eight weeks of personal therapy. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You know, and the papers that they write and the opportunity to explore, you know, some of their money stuff. Many students in the beginning are resisting. Like, I don't want to write about that. You know, do you care if I write about, you know, a client? I don't want to write about myself. You know, I can't obviously force them. I tell them I don't have any way of knowing that you're lying to me. So, you know, I guess, you know, write whatever you want. But the experience that those students have, again, just from writing a couple of papers and talking about some of these things in an open way, they leave those classes changed. And it's not me, you know, their instructor. It's just the opportunity for them to learn themselves from them to also see, like, don't know that, don't go on this journey alone. You know, like if you have a spouse or a partner or a best friend or a brother or a sister or a mom, like, Tell them, hey, yeah, I want to just like explore the feels, you know, when it comes to money. Do you want to do it too? There are so many great books, many of which like there's Dr. Luter has a book that she published on money and relationships. It's not even a very big book, but it has tons of questions in it. Dr. Brad Klontz has multiple books that he's written like Mind Over Money and Money Mammoth, which, you know, all of these books, The Soul of Money, some of Morgan Housel's stuff is great. Like any of these books... Read it and think about yourself. You know, Mm -hmm. don't think about the client. It applies to them too. But think about your own work. You know, think about your own stuff. Read that book for yourself. You know, again, get like a partner or brother or whatever to read it with you and have a bit of dialogue about that. It's, you mentioned Brene Brown earlier, like she's like the queen of vulnerability. Like I'm, I'm there, like let's lean in, let's do the things. And Even having that experience as a financial planner, 
to get a little bit more vulnerable with yourself, if you're going to do this with a partner, being vulnerable with them, the amount of empathy that you will, it will swell in your body the next time you sit across from a client because now you recognize more than ever before how difficult it is to have a financial goal and talk about it, how difficult it is to have a financial past and talk about that, to try to combine finances and love and money and kids and like all this weird stuff all together, you know, and just have a safe place to talk about it. I use a lot of yoga metaphors when I'm talking about money and um, financial planning that, you know, this is, it's like when you go to the yoga class, they're like, you can do child's pose. You can lay in corpse pose. You can, you know, do the asanas with us. But if you, if you just want to lay there, this is your class. This is your mat. I'm holding the space for you. If you've done your own work as a financial advisor, Rick Kaler says you can't take clients than you've further than you've taken yourself. If you've done your work, you are an open yoga mat <laughs> and you are holding the space for your client to stretch and bend and figure that stuff out for themselves. And that is a blessing. That is a sacred space. And I think that that's really important. Your answers are just hitting me today. Thank you for that. (laughs) Uh, Even your yoga example, I remember I I tried to go to yoga and I'm really not flexible. I'm a runner, so my joints are really stiff. One time I went and I was doing um, a pose and the the instructor came over and pushed me. She's like, a little bit deeper. I'm like, it's not going anymore. She's like, no, a little bit more. I'm like, no. Then she put her hand on my back and I, I, I wasn't moving. And I once felt like maybe it was my own self-conscious of that why my yoga or I felt this energy that oh boy you're not doing it well where I've been to other ones where they said the same thing you said like whatever you want and it just feels so much better like it's almost like and I'm making an assumption here but that that one instructor was stuck on a certain outcome and I'm bringing this up because before I took Dr. Brad's Quantz's course at Creighton University I know my conversations were that forcing in my own biases around money, what I learned from my CFP certification numbers of years ago that didn't have any the psychology work. And I took his course because I thought it would help me become a better financial planner. And very soon I realized that this course was all for me in the last five yeah. years. It's been, it's been so revealing that it's all about me and it's been a fun journey to be part of when I've yeah. detached myself. It's not to be a better, to, it's not about acquiring client. It's none of that. It's about learning my own money story. And that's been an incredible right. journey. Yeah. I love Brad and senior Brad or like senior clans, Brad clans. Yeah. Sister, they're, they're just like an awesome family. And the finance, the financial behavioral specialist program at Creighton is, is great. Mm-hmm. I love the program at K State as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's therapy. George has got some really cool stuff going on. You know, I'm a somewhat agnostic, like, And I think that that's the important thing too, that again, if you're listening to this and you're just kind of like, all right, feeling the feels, like there's, again, there's a program at Golden Gate that is more uh, registered life planning stuff. There's Brad's program. There's the K-State program. Georgia has stuff. Texas Tech has stuff. And each one does it a little bit different, you know? And and I would encourage you, it's like dating, you know, like, there's lots of dudes out there. I mean, I'm a girl, so lots of dudes out there. You know, you have to like try them out. You got to try them out. Mm-hmm. Figure out which ones you like. And I think that 
how you get involved in, at this point, you know, I've done grad stuff. I've done financial therapy stuff. I've done the money quotient stuff. I've done the financial transitionist stuff. It's on my list of things to do, do the registered life planning this year. I love it all. And there's something different that has come out of every one of those trainings that I've done. They are each their own tribe, you know, under this big tent of like, just recognizing that there is more to money, that there's just so much to being human and that we can tap into these other places and an easy way to do it or a way that it comes out is through the money. And um, I think that that's, I think that that's really cool. I have loved being a part of all of those different groups. And the, and again, all of the trainings are slightly different, but mm-hmm. offer, offer something beautiful each time. Yeah. I agree with you. And I think everyone listening, probably if they're still listening, either it's a full ingredients or there's a part of them that is the curiosity is being sparked. And I think it's just a, as we've said again, it's a great window or portal into who we are to use your word. You just said as a human. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question around regret. And, and the reason being is this invitation to get to know ourselves requires us to wrestle with the discomforts of, oh, I, I think that, and just accepting and almost surrendering at times that, oh, I did that, what they want to call it, wrong. Or I, I, learning our lessons requires some humility to surrender to our regrets. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes we've been programmed to, I live life with no regrets, or I don't regret anything. We have this aversion the surface level living, I think, could be fail to recognize that within regrets come a lot of learning. You've written around regret in terms of our, our financial lives. What have you learned we can learn from embracing the regrets that we may have had in our lives? The good teacher. That's what I've learned. It's a good teacher. People are usually able to sense, I mean, they have regret. They know that doesn't feel good about one thing or another. And they're usually able to sense that like, if I don't do this, you know, I could regret it. That can sometimes be enough of a, you know, divining rod to decide what to do next. And I think that that, you know, among all of the kind of like bad emotions that people can have, the regret is a a particularly useful one Mm -hmm. in that you still potentially have time to change. And you can, you know, choose something different in the past or in, the, sorry, in the future. And yeah, it just, it doesn't, I've been reading this book called The Good Life. I think that's what it's called, The Good Life. It, uh, it was the book that came out by the people who are currently in charge of the Harvard, the longitudinal Harvard oh, study. Oh, yeah, yeah. Study that's been, you know, book. going on for like four generations, eight generations, 80 years, something like 85, that. 85, yeah. Yeah. And the book... I hate to break it to you guys. You should still read it, but I can tell you that, like, if I if I were to put it out in one sentence, it would just say, "Do things with people that you love." That is the key to happiness. Do things with people that you love. People who have communities, you know, families, people in their life that they love. They are healthier. They are, you know, not lonely. It makes a huge difference to your just general level of well-being when you have someone to love and you have someone to love you. The other part of that is that, you know, most people don't look back at their life and say, 
well, you know, I'm a military spouse, for example, we are moving to Italy. We just got back from Spain. I'm currently in California and my husband was, we thought we were going to Maryland or no, we thought we were wherever we, Virginia, we thought we were going to Virginia and he comes home and he's like, they made a change. You know, I, we're going to go to Italy. And I was like, okay. You know, I, I guess I could have said no, you know, I could have maybe tried to fight it, but I've done, you know, the things that I've done in my life that not, not necessarily about doing things that are scary, but about doing things that are just different, you know, that kind of force you to try something new, whether it's going to a new restaurant and picking something that you don't normally pick, or we don't often look back on our lives and say, yeah, I'm glad I didn't do that. You know, that's, that's just typically not what we do. The opportunity that comes with uncertainty can be very exciting you know, if that's how you want to see it. And to live a life doing things with people that you love, there's no better thing. I'm getting lost for a moment on my thoughts about how this relates to regret, but it's just like, it's not about, oh, I regret nothing. You know, I can't, it's never going to be like that. There's always going to be things that we regret, but life is an experiment. You know, things are or can be seen, you know, as an adventure no matter what happens, no matter what twist or turn you take, there is something to be learned. And as humans, that is how we learn. You know, so take a few more turns, you know, jump a few more times, especially if you're doing it with people that you love, it's worth it every time. And those things, you know, we don't, we don't regret. We don't regret spending more time with people that we love. Megan, your answers are just like speaking all to me. I, I don't know. I love this. Thank you. I like that. Take a few more turns. That's a good statement. You mentioned you and your husband had or that condo in Cal, or, uh, San Diego and you mentioned California. I was in San Diego yesterday with a uh, group of people from Canada, where I'm from, and they wanted to go to this one this one bar. And I had done some research and I found some like character bars that none of them would have gone to. And these are all like, 40 plus year olds and is it was like a dive bar but they did karaoke and i convinced everyone to go and they had the time of their lives like this one guy's like oh this this bar could tell stories for decades and like yeah so was it the star bar by any chance it was the star bar (laughs) i have been the star bar way too many times yeah yeah it was it used to be an all cash bar it only recently started taking credit cards and oh really walls could tell stories Again, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. <laughs> so, yeah, Star Bar, that's a fun one. Star Bar, oh, I'm glad, I'm glad I brought it up. And, and my point to that is, like, that's a turn, so to speak, for many of those people. They want to go to the, the restaurant at the bottom of the Hard Rock Hotel, and which is nothing wrong, but, no. but you know what? That was a bit of a, a jump, to use another analogy that you said. My final question, and I, I really don't want a final question, but I did commit to a time here. You may have slightly answered it, but let's say you are at the end of life. This is direct borrow from Brad and Ted's questions, by the way. <laughs> you may have recognized it, but you're at end of life and you're sitting on a front porch somewhere that brings you peace, contentment, and just ease. You decide to take out a notebook to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned, what you learned personally, what it means to have a happy, healthy relationship with money what would be a theme to that letter there's a book by margaret heffernan called uncharted 
And in the book, she writes about how we should embrace uncertainty like artists to where they don't look at this blank screen. You know, I'm sure Michelangelo didn't look at the blank, you know, Sistine Chapel ceiling and say, I don't know if I can do it. You know, like, I don't know what's going to come out, you know, and I'm, I'm not, what if I don't like it? You know, like he may have still had some of this anxiety. We always have anxiety a bit when we get started, but artists kind of know, you know, that it could be their next great thing that, that, that this uncertainty is an opportunity and they are just going to create because that is what they feel called to do. I want to embrace, and I would want my children and my children's children to embrace this idea that uncertainty is an opportunity and your life is for art. And so to do, to do what that looks like. And again, to do it with people that you love, there will be a day when you paint a picture you don't like and your best friend should be right there to just throw the paint back on top of it and say, we can do it again. So I cultivating those relationships with people, cultivating with what, in a world where we're constantly changing and, and change is our only option to, to find a way to either have a calm in that storm or to really look at that as, you know, a, a ride, again, an opportunity as, as something exciting and an experiment that no matter what, you're going to come out on the other side, you know, having learned something. I feel like for much of my life, I'm a nervous person. I even joke with my students that, like on the Myers-Briggs, I'm on the neurotic scale, which is actually probably why I'd make a really bad financial advisor because clients would come in and they'd be like, I'm freaking out. And I'd be like, hey, no. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm that person, you know, so I can't, I can't do that. And my, my just freak neuroticism keeps me from, it has kept me from doing things. And um, I don't, I don't want that for them. And I don't want that for myself. And so, you know, keeping, to just trying to keep that, that mantra playing in my mind, you know, that this, this, my life is my masterpiece. You know, I am an artist, you know, I will set this motion, you know, to where I will embrace this uncertainty and I will embrace it with people that I love, you know, your, your most hated F word, you know, so other F words, there's, you know, the, the freeze and the flight and the fight there's another F word that we commonly forget about, especially as like Americans and even Canadians, because we're such an individualist society, but there's also flock. And flock is a very natural way to help deal with stress and anxiety. And all flock means is that, that you spread your stress and anxiety out with others. It's like why you call your mom. You're flocking, you know? And so have, have more people you can flock with. You will, you will do better in life. You'll be happier. You'll be healthier if you spend time flocking. <laughs> so yeah, that's probably what I'd say to them. Flock, paint, just do it again if you don't like it. You, the, I, uh, thank you. There are so many great quotes that you have said throughout this. <laughs> Flock, paint, and do it again if you don't like it. <laughs> like, it's, it's very profound but simple words. I was a philosophy undergrad, you know, it, it managed, it manages to find its way deep, love, super verbose and love to say things that sound, you know, super fancy, but they're, they're really not. No, they, I, but there's so much like truth to them that, yeah. Megan, this has been very, very uh, enjoyable for myself. So thank you. Thank um, you. 
for the listeners who want to find out more about Megan, where would you point them towards online? The kitsis.com platform. The, it's K-I-T-C-E-S dot com. That's where all of my writing ends up usually. And it's where I have webinars and things like that, among others on the platform, which are also uh, amazing. I am a professor. If you're just, you know, I, I guess, you know, we were talking earlier about trying to convince people to like do their own work. I'm at Kansas State. I'm at Columbia. Sign up for my class. <laughs> you know, we will, uh, we'll do your work together and it will be great. So you can also find me there. I think that's a great invitation because this work is really life's work. So yeah. we'll include all that in the show notes. And thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you. That was an enjoyable conversation. Be sure to head over to kitsis.com to read all of Megan's wonderful articles. When I say all of them, she does have several, but they are fascinating. I think you will highly enjoy reading them. And next week, we'll have round two where we talk about the application of positive psychology with our money lives. So be sure to check out that episode next Thursday. If you're still listening, perhaps that means you enjoyed this episode. And if that's the case... I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Until next week, take care. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sea.